This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hello! Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am your host, Cap Times food editor Lindsay Christians. This fall, I went out to Reedsburg on a Saturday morning to moderate a panel about artisan grains and sourdough. Fermentation Fest is an annual festival about all kinds of fermented things. My panel was this amazing group of people. We had Andrew Hutchison from Madison Sourdough and Kirk Smock from Origin Breads, both here in Madison. Julie Dawson from UW-Madison talked about plant breeding and developing regional grains. My friend Gail Williams from Lonesome Stone Milling in Lone Rock was there, and Hallie Webking was our farmer. She grows grains out of Meadowlark Organics. Today, I have an edited version of this chat, and I'm hoping to release a longer version as well for the people who've requested that. Keep in mind that this was a storefront in Reedsburg, and we were passing a recorder around the table, so some of this stuff might be a little bit fuzzy, but overall, I was really happy about how this came out. Fermentation Fest 2019, Artisan Grains and Sourdough. All right, so welcome to this session of Fermentation Fest. Um, This is a panel about artisan grains and sourdough. We're at Fermentation Fest, a live culture convergence here in beautiful, rainy Reedsburg. Um, My first time here, it's delightful. Um, We're so glad that you're all here. Um, I I wanted to give a quick intro as to what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about bread with a couple amazing bakers. Um, We're going to be talking about milling local grain and why that matters. We're going to talk about wheat and rye and how regional heritage grain diverges from the ag system that we have that's sort of built on wonder bread and industrial commercial products. Um, We're going to hear today from the people who are building this regional grain system. So farmers, millers, bakers, scientists, everybody's working together to sort of create this regional grain system. Uh, So I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with Andrew. (laughs) Andrew, hi. So when we think about artisan bread versus sort of industrial wonder bread, what makes it, what makes it different and what makes it interesting? Uh, That's a good question. I think what really defines artisan bread as something that's made by hand in some way. Um, I think what's most interesting about artisan breads is that it's, uh, it changes over time, um, whether you're using local grains, um, dealing with different types of wheats, um, different harvest years, etc. But also that um, the loaf, um, each loaf kind of uh, reflects the baker's hand. So um, at Madison Sourdough we make you know, close to a thousand loaves of bread a day and everything is hand-shaped, and um, uh, having worked with the bakery team um, pretty much every day, um, I can see their their loaves and their mark, um, whether it's the scoring on top of the loaves or the shape. Um, to you know, a regular consumer, um, you probably haven't noticed those nuances, but um, that's one thing I find uh, really interesting about it. It's, um, I talk about that with my bakers, both as like a launching point for like, here's how you can improve your loaf, but also like, it's okay if this looks slightly different, because that's actually what we're, we're kind of going for, right? We're not going for something that is completely uniform, something that has character, um, and there's a lot of beauty in that, so. Mm-hmm. Gil, I wanted to ask you, um, 
when we're talk, talking about the bread itself having change and, and maybe being different loaf by loaf, um, how does milling impact that? How do grains change based on milling? That, there's a, a long answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me start with sort of a short one. Um, you, you start with different types of wheat, and um, I've brought a few samples here. Um, we have what is a soft red winter wheat, which is what grows uh, mostly in the eastern half of the United States. Now, that doesn't have a lot of protein and a lot of protein structure, so it winds up being the pastry flour, or we use it for distillering. It makes a lot of gin and vodka. Um, and then we have the hard red spring wheat, and this is what grows mostly in the Great Plains, but what we found is there are a few varieties that do work well east of the Mississippi, and that's where our focus has been. And to be able to culture a good wheat that works in this environment, that is, we are wetter than the Great Plains, and then mm. will produce a bread-quality flour through stone milling, and I brought an example of an eight-inch stone mill, um, and we have a 30-inch mill of this. And, um, you know, variances in milling is one of the challenges because, you know, I know Andrew and Kirk need to get a very regular, stable flour. And this has always been a challenge because in the beginning we were buying 10 or 20 acre lots of grain. And so the, the product keeps changing as you keep changing with, with the grain. But since um, Meadowlark has been developed, we've been able to get larger organic grain lots and really stabilize a lot of this. Although the 2018 harvest was short and towards April or May, June, July, it was hard to maintain that. But we really, you know, we've got down a system now where if the grain's going to change, we're going to give a heads up to the customers. Julie, I was hoping that you could address sort of a little bit more globally why grain breeding matters, why it's important. The history of wheat breeding in this country has been interesting because it has been focused on developing varieties that are really good for the commodity system. So soft wheat and hard wheat are things that we have created through breeding. Historic wheats weren't divided into soft and hard categories. Um, so soft is low protein, hard is high protein, low protein is better for pastries, uh, high protein tends to be better for the artisanal breads and the yeast breads. Uh, and those are things that were created through selection for high and low protein over the last 50 to 100 years. Um, because of the way our food system evolved in that same time, the wheat breeding that has been done has been targeted towards uh, a more industrial system. And so we've developed soft wheats based on tests of how much a cookie will spread, uh, and hard wheats based on how much a loaf of bread will rise, and that is typically done with a white flour and a yeast bread, so a typical Wonder Bread type loaf. And the selection criteria is how much can you get that bread to rise, um, how high can you push the protein levels in a winter wheat or a spring wheat. Um, and so the wheat varieties that were created are created for those types of products. And when we start looking at artisanal breads and artisanal pastries and growing wheat in different environments, we may need different qualities. And so that's why it's important for breeding now to look at and what I've done in 
my work with wheat breeding is, is mostly working on organic systems and on varieties that will work well for a 100% sourdough process versus a yeast bread. Are there particular lines that are the most promising so far? We have um, kind of three to five lines, uh, three that we've sent out for on-farm trials. They have um, numbers basically now, <laughs> so they are not uh, commercialized yet, but they are crosses between historic wheat uh, from France that had really good bread making quality and good performance in organic systems, and then more modern um, winter wheats from the, the Northeast and the Midwest that had very good performance in organic systems here uh, in the U.S. And I, I should say the, the breeding between the U.S. and Europe has been different, um, not only in the end product goals, but also in the production systems. So wheat breeding in the U.S. tends to be in a low input system. So even conventional wheat breeding is done without a lot of nitrogen fertilizer and without pesticide sprays. So some of the modern wheat varieties that have come out of programs in the U.S. have good disease resistance and have uh, good performance. And so we're using those for performance and then using some of the, the older wheat varieties for their qualities in artisanal bread making and trying to develop varieties, new varieties that will work well here that have both of those characteristics together. Hallie, can you talk a little bit about what you are growing right now in terms of the grades and, and, and wheat you're growing? Sure. We grow a lot of different things. <laughs> um, we grow a few varieties of winter wheats. We grow a heritage variety called Turkey Red, um, and then a more modern one that's very popular also in the Northeast called Warthog. And then we grow Spelt, uh, which is one of the three ancient grains. Um, and rye, we grow a couple of different varieties. One um, that we're excited about is a Polish variety called Danko, which is supposed to be very good for milling and distilling. Um, and then for spring planted, we grow some modern varieties, kind of whatever is really available to us. Um, and then also a heritage variety called Red Fife, which is, comes out of Canada. Um, wheats. And these kind of grains are cool season grass. So the the wet spring was fine. I mean, we got a lot of our spring planted stuff in before the snow. Those grow oats, um, and oats apparently love snow. Uh, we're thriving in that. And um, the real concern is when you have a lot of rainfall at the time of flowering, um, which increases a lot of disease risk. Um, so we were, you know, a little terrified of what our test results were going to be, and for the most part, they were okay. Um, but it, that's really kind of the tough, the tough moment um, where, you know, we do a lot on our farm to try to mitigate disease risk by, through rotation and good practices, but there are some things that are just out of your control as a farmer, obviously. So, um, you know, and getting a lot of rainfall during flowering is, a, you know, you're sitting there like, hoping that we'll get some dry, you know, windy weather. And our farm is in the Driftless. Um, it's very hilly. We have a lot of ridgetop fields. And so we feel like we have an advantage over people who are planting in, you know, bottoms. Um, because we do have a lot of wind, and it will help to dry out a lot of um, wet fields, wet conditions. So we're uh, 
well positioned in that way um, to kind of handle those kind of disease risks. But most recently, it's been very challenging to find windows to get our fall planted grains in. So we planted some a little early, earlier than we would have, just because we saw the forecast and it was like a 40% chance of rain for the next 10 days. So, you know, you take a gamble, you take a risk. So we got in our winter, some of our winter wheats, um, and now we're waiting for a window to get the rest of it in. But it makes for a very um, stressful fall, for sure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Um, Kirk, yeah. uh, you make a lot of bread with Kelly's grains. Yeah. When you are at the Eastside Farmer's Market, where I can see fairly frequently, and you're trying to communicate about what you do and why you do, like the, the things the way you do them, um, what are some of those challenges in trying to communicate? Like this is this is what we're doing with these local brands. I mean, we just try and tell the story of the the. I mean, everybody here that's represented at the table. Um, the grain has been one of those products in a farmers market that has been lost. I think to people being concerned about where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, people eat their bread or their cookies or whatever baked item it may be. Um, without much thought of where the, the grains are from and what's in it. And so when I opened the bakery, it was with the idea of bringing that to the forefront and having people realize that you can get local grains. A lot of people, you know, more, I, I have more regular customers now, but certainly starting out, a lot of people um, didn't realize that there were grains grown in, in Wisconsin. There was so much wheat grown here. I think getting people to realize from the baker's standpoint, um, the challenges that you deal with in, in only getting uh, you know, a single source grain. Uh, a lot of the industrial flour, you know, if you go and buy a bag of whatever flour on the shelf, that's usually it's mixed from different farms so that it is very stable. And the bakers know every time they mix, they're gonna get the same, same result. Um, and especially when we started, we were getting you know, I didn't even realize how challenging it would be before I, I jumped in um, until we were getting all these <laughs> different grains, like and, <laughs> uh, and it was it was very difficult to get a consistent product. And um, you know, we do we're still doing everything by hand. Um, all the mixing and, and everything is, is done by hand. It's gotten more challenging as our batches have gotten larger, but it also has given us the advantage to to learn the different grains mm-hmm. as we've been going along. Um, and you know, every time we get a new delivery, even though it may be the same grain from the same farm, um, depending on where the mill is and the dressing, or uh, it, this is something I heard, I've never clarified with Tally, but depending on where it's grown and the different part of the farm, you know, the wetness or dryness could affect the grain. So we deal with a lot of variables, and so by hand mixing, then we're able to, you know, every time we mix, we're checking the hydration. We go a lot on feel. Um, versus the formulas, and so, you know, for customers to realize that bigger picture and the challenges of the farmers and the challenges of the millers. As sourdough breads have become more popular, you can go into any large grocery store and buy a bag of sourdough bread that, you know, it's advertised as sourdough bread, but there's no oversight on what 
is it sourdough bread and what consists of it? So they can put in a dried powder of sourdough along with the 38 other chemicals and ingredients that go into a bread and sell it as a sourdough starter, but as far as the health benefits there, you know, it's still like quick yeasted bread that goes from flour to, to loaf in a couple hours and maybe no hands were on it at all. So it's also communicating that part of it um, because there are cheaper versions of sourdough out there. For the sake of clarity, I just wanted to say this next question went to Andrew Hutchison of Madison Sourdough. You have been working with local grains for a long time at Madison Sourdough, and now you have this mill in-house. And I'm curious, like, since you've had it and you've been sort of, you know, working with it all the time, what have you learned over the past few years, like, having to, like, mill in-house in terms of things like trial and error and working with your own breads? Um, I have an appreciation for the miller. That's for sure. Um, yeah. It's not. Um, it's not a romantic job. <laughs> uh, grinding grain into flour is um, is a lot of work, and it's dusty and it's dirty. Um, but it's it's fun. Um, I would say that um, you know we wanted to start milling um, for mostly starting from a creative standpoint. Um, being able to take control of the specific grinds we were doing on different grains, um, whether that's a coarse or very fine, we can control that, um, and being able to manipulate that. Um, I've also found it easier to um, enact uh, change and adaptability to the grain. Um, so if we you know, have two products, like a fine rye and a coarse rye, um, and the rye uh, starts to change, whether it's from a different field or from a different harvest, different farm, um, we can manipulate the mill to produce a similar flour um, every week, right? So, um, whereas um, different uh, you know qualities of a certain grain will grind differently, whether they're harder or softer, and so um, being able to take a little bit of more control over that um, was uh, very helpful. And just like I said, from a creative standpoint, um, really nice. I think um, it's also enabled us to um, just. You know, I have farmers beyond Halley calling me and say, hey, I got X, do you want to use it? And I say, I don't know, why don't you send me 10 pounds of it? <laughs> and then I'm able to mill it and do an evaluation on it, just kind of, I have a standard recipe that I work with. Um, this is kind of a process that we're applying to the um, the breeding, the wheat breeding program and doing uh, bakery evaluations with that. Um, and so having that flexibility, um, it's very interesting for me to um, work with those different grains and see how they, uh, how they act differently. I think it's great for my staff to see that as well. Um, you know, we're, you know, obviously we're employing people to make breads and pastries and stuff like that, but um, a lot of the people that, that work in the bakery are interested in baking in a larger sense. Um, and so they're kind of, this is a place where they're able to um, see something that they probably won't have that experience in many other bakeries, right? Being able to mill and see those results and also do that kind of testing. Um, um, I, I wanted actually to address this to sort of both Julie and Hallie. Um, grains that you're working with right now that you are, like basically, what 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 some what sort of grades are you trialing maybe specifically and like what are the ones that you're most excited about that you're like oh my gosh this could be really cool I hope it goes well kind of thing um, just sort of wondering where you guys are with that 
most of what we're doing trials on is uh, winter wheat for bread, so hard winter wheat. Um, that is a harder thing to get in this climate than a soft winter wheat. So what happens is that when you plant a grain in the fall, it has all winter, I mean it goes dormant, but it, it starts in the, in the fall, then it goes dormant, then it gets a really early start in the spring, and so it can yield more. It's taking in more sun and transforming it into grain. That is good from the farmer's point of view, and from our point of view as you know, wanting to produce food, uh, but it means that since the grain is accumulating more starch, the percentage protein tends to be lower because the grain doesn't need that much protein to you know, produce a new plant. And so it kind of produces as much protein as it needs for the next generation and then fills the rest up with starch. So the percent protein tends to be lower in grains that have higher yields in winter grains. Um, and that's why spring wheat, hard spring wheat, is often used for bread because it has a shorter growing season, it's not accumulating as much starch, and so the protein percentage tends to be higher. The winter grains are nice though for organic systems in particular because they are cover for the soil, we're preventing erosion, um, they're easier to weed. Uh, if you plant it in the fall, you often have a, a good window to get it in, and then in the spring you can um, either intercede it with a clover, which is good from an ecological point of view, as well as from producing nitrogen and weed control. Uh, the spring grains tend to be harder to control weeds in because you're planting them in a period where you may only have a short window to get in the field. It, they're harder to then cultivate before you plant and after you plant. And they're just more challenging for organic farmers. So if we want high quality bread wheat, uh, produced locally, it would be nice to have a winter grain that produces a high quality bread wheat. So that's what we've been attempting to do with the breeding program is uh, combine parents that produce high, higher levels of protein, but also higher quality protein. Because it's not just the, the protein content of the grain that matters for baking, it's all, also the quality of the gluten that's in that grain. And so producing a high quality protein in a winter wheat uh, that bakes really well is the goal. It's probably the most challenging thing to grow in this climate and so that's why it's a research project and we're really lucky to be able to work um, with farmers on actually testing the lines. It, it takes some time because you start with hundreds of little tiny plots and you get grain that is just enough to plant for the next year and then eventually you get enough so you can give some, even though it's not quite as much <laughs> as you would have liked. Yeah, um, Lucia uh, and Pablo ended up taking their planter out because yeah. we John still didn't have John quite enough. John looked at it and he was like, I <laughs> can't do this by myself. Right, yeah. This is going to disappear in my planter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so having the ability to do on-farm trials and then also having the ability to mill small quantities is really important for the breeding program because um, working with Madison sourdough, we can have 10 pounds and it actually comes out the end of the mill rather than like getting stuck in the cracks of a bigger mill and like nothing comes out the end. So um, being able to work with experts in farming, milling, baking really lets us make sure that we're targeting the right end product. Uh, and you know, 
having the resources of the university means that we can be a little more out there and trying to get you know the higher risk target, which is a high quality uh, in organic systems. So that's what I'm excited about. Did you have thoughts that you wanted to add in terms of uh, things that you're excited about? Yeah. Um, so it's very much in line with a lot of what Julie was talking about. A lot of what we are excited about are fall planted things. So <laughs> rye, spelt, um, things that are essentially seen as cover crops, you know, things that will help us hold soil over winter. Um, and into spring and get a jump on weeds in the early spring. Um, and for us, you know, the issue is being able to market a lot of those things. So it comes to a lot of consumer education and also like professional baking education. Um, but, you know, also, you know, Andrew and Kirk can't just make whatever bread would serve us or, you know, it has to also be what people are interested in eating. Um, so rye, for example, um, we have to go to distillery markets um, and we also are hoping to help generate more kind of awareness about ways that rye can be used by everyday bakers and professional bakers as well. Um, and same goes for spelt too. It's another fall planted grain and it is one that has to be de-holed and we, did, we do have a de-holer at our farm to be able to do that. Um, but it agronomically is, they're very helpful to us in our system and then the issue is always finding the markets for them. Again, in the interest of clarity, this next question was directed to Kirk Smuck from Origin Bread. I was curious about how like European bread baking traditions and other, basically, tr you traveled so much. Um, and I wonder if there are like, you know, bread making practices in other countries that have informed the way that your sort of practice began. And I'm also hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about your sourdough. Um, and, and so I'm asking about your process, basically. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the process that we use has just changed and adapted with many different influences. There, you know, I started as a home baker, so it was it was probably like if there's any of you are home bakers, same process. And starting with yeast breads, and then I moved into sourdough breads. After I had an amazing loaf of bread in New York City, that was um, it was a sourdough and made with a it was a mixture, a blend of different grains, but. Um, what that, was it, it was called Scratch Bread out of Brooklyn. And um, he's, I don't know, they ended up closing. He's still around a bit, but he was baking out of a, when he started just, he was using a wood-fired pizza oven at night after the pizza place was done. So the bread was very blistered and just amazing flavor. And I, Matt was the baker and I talked to him to see, um, you know, like why it was just, it, it just blew my mind. Like that was the transformation process for me. And then after that, um, I started with the sourdough and then never looked back. Um, there were a lot of failed loaves with the sourdough for sure. How'd you make it? How to make the sourdough mm -hmm. culture? Just flour and water. <coughs> just you mix. You know, it's it's really easy. You know, the the yeast and the bacteria exist in the air. Um, on the grain. Yeah, right. it's on the flour. A lot of it's in the air, and there's a lot of recipes out there where it's like you can add grapes, or you can add apple say, juice, or you can add, you know, there's or add right? sugar, yeah. or some of them will tell you to start with a bit of commercial yeast, but it's um, you don't need you just mix equal amounts of flour and water and um, let it sit. Let it sit, 
um, and then watch for activity and then just get it on a regular feeding schedule and you're just cultivating um, the starter. You're giving it a, a good, healthy place to live. And so there's, uh, within that, um, I don't think we need to go in the deep dive of uh, the different variables, how you can um, just manipulate your sourdough starter um, for, you know, you can have more sour resulting bread or a less sour resulting bread. Um, we try to use a younger sourdough starter so that you can taste the grain. I mean, we're using really good grains. That's important to us. So we want our customers to be able to taste the, the wheat or the rye or the spelt or whatever we're using in there before they have a, you know, a, a sour taste. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that say they don't like sourdough breads. Um, because of the traditionally very sour, like San Francisco style. Um, so I always tell them to try it first before saying they don't like it. But, um, so the process, you know, as far as that, yeah, coming from the home baker side of it, I guess, and once I started learning about sourdoughs and the health benefits of sourdough breads and giving it time to develop, um, and for me, I was doing it, I would work from home a lot as a writer, and so that was just something I could do throughout the day to break up staring at a computer screen and procrastinate at the same time, because I'm a horrible <laughs> procrastinator. Uh, so I would be like, oh, I gotta get up and, and stretch the dough. So I liked the fact that it wasn't a quick yeasted bread that you know would be done in two hours. It was something that was sitting on the counter that I would check on throughout the day and throw in the fridge overnight and then bake the next morning um, for fresh bread for breakfast. So. That process is what then fed into the process that we use now. We've, you know, scaled it up, but we're still mixing everything by hand. Um, everything is 100% sourdough. And we do all the doughs. I'm sure it's the same that Andrew's doing. Everything's made the day before, and then we ferment it overnight. Um, and a lot of that, you know, for as a bakery owner, small bakery owner, that also allows a better schedule somewhat you can manipulate it by putting it in the fridge um, at different temperatures so I don't have to work always have to work 20 hour days um, but it also you know the main reason is it creates a healthier loaf which Julie got into with that it's a more digestible more flavorful um, healthier loaf and so those traditions are ancient you know that's what was lost I think in American bread baking and the whole Wonder Bread culture um, and so the, the flavors that come out, um, you know, customers just talk about how it tastes so good. Um, and part of that is using good ingredients, like anything with cooking. If you start with good, freshly milled wheat or flour, um, you're just going to have way more flavor. But then you can manipulate that, coax it out, give over time. Um, and I think that's just what was, that's what was lost. Um, in the regional grains, and I actually, the first time I started playing and focusing on local grains was when we were living in Mozambique, and the flour there, it's, a, it's very much a bread culture there. Uh, it's a very important part of their diet, but it's a very highly refined white flour that they're using. Um, and so it's just flavorless, and it was horrible for me when we moved there to bake with that bread. My sourdough starter took a nosedive. Uh, I didn't have any nutrients to feed on, and it was. And I started looking around for better flour and found a local mill in South Africa um, where they grow a lot. So then I started using theirs, and that's when I then became obsessed. It was a stone mill, um, and we would go over and bring a truckload illegally back across the border. Um, 
Because it was just, it was the, so that's what really opened up my eyes to using a freshly milled, um, relatively local at that time, flour. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. Last week, we said goodbye to our amazing podcast guy, Eric Lawrenson, who's going to be making his way in Montreal. We'll miss you, Eric. Check out Jesse O'Poyan on the political podcast Wedge Issues every Friday. We share a studio with the guys from Center Stage, the State Journal, so check them out too. And for more food and drink news, including this week's cover story, go to captimes.com. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like us, give us a review. I am your host, Cap Times Food Editor Lindsay Christians, and this week, my wish for you is homemade ramen. It's definitely a project, but it's so worth it. Cheers! This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.